Revelation chapter 3. We come to the fifth of the seven churches of Asia named in Revelation. And uh, that is the church of Sardis. Geographically, you had Ephesus and then just north of it, Smyrna. And those are port cities or have access to the port. And then went up above that up to... uh, Pergamus, and then Thyatira, and from Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea, they come in kind of a southeasterly fashion, geographically from each other. Sardis, we're finding out about tonight, is right on a lake, or right beside a body of water there, and it is the fifth church. Remember, all of these were real churches. They all existed at the same time. I believe they show pictures of what happens during the history of the Christian church down through the ages. But they were real churches, and all of them have things for churches to learn because they're all addressed in the Word of God. Jesus describes Himself differently to each church, and then each church has the same benediction, if you will, from the Lord Jesus Christ. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. That is said to each one of them. And so there's a lot of things, uh, a lot of things common and yet things that deal with the individual churches. Here, right at the first century, the Apostle John still being alive, you have churches that are strong and churches that are in very rough shape already. So I want you to understand, uh, people say, well, you know, this or that happens with churches. It always has. Uh, flesh has always been flesh. And uh, humanity has always been humanity. And there are things we battle. And um, every church is only as strong as its walk with God is. And that's only as strong as the individuals within the church. Because the church is a group of individuals who have come together, saved by the grace of Christ, baptized after they get saved, and then... Uh, uniting together on purpose to spread the gospel and to teach the Word of God. And so it's a group of people. On any given day, a church's congregation, they have a number of people who are walking in the flesh, not in the Spirit. Any day, you'll have people who are having a victory in their life uh, going on. I was stopped on Sunday by one of our folks here at our church, and they were excited and they said, Preacher, you wouldn't have known this, but inside I've been in a, in a kind of cold, I've described it as a backslidden point. And they said, God's doing something inside of me. And the Bible's opening up again. They were just talking about some things God was doing and their eyes were bright and sparkling. They were happy about what God was doing. I was happy for them. And that was a good, a good report. But on any given week, you've got people who are in one state or another. And our adversary, the devil, is very real. He wants to take us out of action individually. He cannot, if you're actually saved, He cannot take your soul. Cannot do it. He knows that. You're out of His reach as far as that goes. So what He would like to take is your influence. And uh, the, the, the thing is to divert your influence where it won't be for the Lord as it ought to be. And so we're going to look at Sardis here. Uh, Sardis, that, that town, that city as it were, was under Persian rule. The Persian Empire was quite powerful. Had a long history. 
And uh, it was under Persian rule from the 6th century B.C. until the time of Alexander. Sardis itself was the eastern terminus of quite a uh, spectacular road, especially for that time period. That uh, road was built during the 5th century under Darius the Great, and it went from Persepolis to Sardis, Persepolis being its western terminus and, and Sardis being the eastern, and uh, that road was about 1,700 miles long. That was an amazing engineering feat and unusual until the Roman Empire got more developed. And, of course, it had some magnificent roads and lengthy roads and that sort of thing with it. Um, in the 6th century B.C., one of the things that put Sardis on the map was the metallurgist in that, uh, in that city learned how to take the gold dust that was, they could find in the area and they, they had a way of getting and to purify it and make coins. And they started making solid gold coins there in Sardis. That's quite an early state for that to be done. And uh, so it became very well known for that and, and the, the coinage and stuff with that. And so it was, it was a pretty interesting place. The city was actually uh, leveled in about 17 AD. There was an earthquake that just leveled the city. And uh, then it was uh, rebuilt rapidly and uh, to decent prominence. Under the, uh, under the influence of the Emperor Tiberius and it was put back up and it was a uh, very viable city, of course, by the time John was, was around there and that was going to have been rebuilt after the earthquake with it. Um, I'm going to show you this. Uh, the only time we encounter uh, the word Sardis is in Revelation 1 when the seven churches are named and then in the passage we're going to read tonight. Let's go to the reading of the passage, Revelation chapter 3. Let's look in verse 1. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Um, like I said, the only time you find out anything about Sardis in the Bible is right there where we read, and then in chapter 1 where it mentions it's one of the seven churches with it. Also, I'm going to say right up front in the message here, there are two vital parts of this uh, uh, this teaching that I cannot expound to you with certainty. And uh, so then trying to, rather than bluffing my way through that, which I don't think a preacher should do, I'm just going to give you uh, what I know about it. And one of that, that's just taking you to the other places where it's mentioned in the Scripture. One is, it's when Jesus describes Himself, He describes as He that has the seven spirits of God. That you say, can you tell us what that's all about? Maybe when we read that, you said, well, I'm going, I'm going to be waiting to hear the explanation on that. Yeah, me too. And, 
<laughs> it's, uh, there's some things I know about it, but nothing where I'll go out with a certainty and saying scripturally I'm on a strong basis with this. I want to I give you the places where that shows up because they're all here in the book of Revelation. Look in Revelation chapter 4, if you will, and I think I buried that. I did. Revelation chapter 4. Look in verse 3. Nope, that's not what I want. I'm sorry, Philippians 4 verse 3. They're not on Revelation. That didn't ring straight in my brain. That was right. Philippians 4. You know what I did. I'm sorry. Let's read that, if you will. But that isn't what I need to give you. That's on the next point. It says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, but Clement also and with other my fellow laborers. Here's the part that's in the next point. Whose names are in the book of life. So mark that down for the next one, right? Revelation 1 verse 4. That's what I confused The preacher, you only can't expound them. You can't find them. Yeah, Maybe that's my problem. Revelation 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before the throne. Then it goes to finish the sentence and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And so there you have, uh, first time it shows up, the seven spirits which are before the throne. Now that I'm actually dialed into what I'm teaching you, look at uh, then, if you will look over in chapter 5, I'll look in chapter 4, and then I'll do it in order. 4 and then verse 5 both, or chapter 5 both. Chapter 4 and verse 5. It says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Then uh, the final one when it shows up is in chapter 5. And then verse 6. And I beheld... And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the, and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And uh, so those are the passages that deal with it. So when he talks about this, when Jesus describes himself, he said he is the one who has the seven spirits and of God. And what this is dealing with, uh, I, know, I know for certain, and we'll deal with this in a moment, but you, it's equated with the eyes on the Lamb, so it has something to do with knowing and discerning and be able to see with that. And so that much I know. The second thing that I can't expound to you, and uh, I'm going to give you the references. We're not going to turn to all of them. I'll give you these. I'd ask you to write them down. Take your time later to read them. Please don't miss the message by looking everything up while I'm 
I'm preaching, you'd miss, miss what you could be fed tonight that way. But it would be the passage I did read to you because I jumped down one line in my outline here. Philippians 4 verse 3 deals with the book of life. We read about that in, in Revelation 3. The names of are not blot their name out of the book of life. That leads to some interesting questions. Philippians 4 verse 3 is one place it shows up. It shows up in our text where we just read in verse 5, Revelation 3 verse 5, book of life. It's called the book of life. There's another reference to the Lamb's book of life. Um, then Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 is another reference you can check later. These all are Revelation uh, references now. Chapter 17 and verse 8. So Revelation 13 verse 8. Revelation 17 verse 8. Chapter 20 verse 12 and 15. Chapter 20 verses 12 and 15 in that chapter. And then the final one is Revelation 21 and verse 27. And so you can look those up. And uh, I can't expound that to you. Um, when it comes to the description of Jesus, it says, He that hath the seven spirits of God in the seven stars. The one thing I do understand in it, or one of the things I should say I understand, is that the spirits are for discerning and revealing. Uh, because it has to do with the eyes and the lamb seen and, and these sort of things. And the church at Sardis was being discerned by the Lord. Jesus was looking at them and knew exactly what they were. That's very vital when you understand the beginning of what it says about Sardis there. That they have a name or a reputation, but there's a reality that doesn't match what the reputation is. So, part of what's happening with those spirits is the fact that they understand that the Lord looks and knows what He's looking at with that. And also that he was seeking to reveal them to themselves. You'll see in the rest of what we're going to say tonight, the Lord knew what they were and he was seeking to reveal to them what they were so something could be done about it. And uh, they, were, they were not quite getting it. Uh, this is one of the two churches among the seven that did not have a direct positive mentioned about it. There's two of the seven that did not have a direct positive mentioned about him. Others had problems. Ephesus had such a strong problem, they could lose their charter or their candlestick as a church, but yet the, the Lord mentioned a number of good things that were going on in Ephesus. There is nothing positive as a church whole mentioned about Sardis. There are mentioned some that even in Sardis had done something right. Now, as a church body... You don't want the Lord to have to say, even at your church, there's a couple of good ones. That's not good. The only other church that has nothing redeeming mentioned about it, you want to guess what it is? Laodicea. And uh, they doesn't have anything redeeming about it. Uh, but Sardis has a few people, but as a church whole, not even. Uh, that's something, something else with that. Um, and so Laodicea doesn't have that at all. I want you to notice these different things and we'll see as we go through. First of all, look, look back in our text at Revelation 3. <clears throat> I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, it says, And unto the, church, uh, unto the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things saith he that hath seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay? 
So the, the, we know the description Jesus gives of Himself directly addresses the need of the church. The next statement He says is, I know thy works. I put down with that, He knows their works. He doesn't just see them, He actually knows them. He knows their underlying motive and intent. It was interesting today, after the uh, funeral and such, um, the, the, the talked to some people afterwards and, and had some good opportunity there. But then I was driving back into town. I probably got back in town about 2 o'clock or so, I think somewhere around there, 1.32. I don't know, I called you when I was heading back down, something like that, and uh, whatever time it was. And uh, I stopped to get something to eat, and I overheard across from me, there was a lady who turned out to be a grandmother of these two young people, and she was actually, in a conversational way, was instructing them in the Bible while they were eating lunch together. I thought that was pretty neat. I would put the young fellow that was sitting there, maybe about eight or ten years old, and seemed like the girl would have been a couple, three years younger than him, maybe. You know how I am about guessing kids' ages. They may have been 30 for all I know. But they were, um, they seemed to be about that age group. And she was instructing them about something, and the young fellow asked a question, and she was teaching them something about choosing their friends. You could, it kind of seemed to be the theme. And she was saying to him, she says, you know, we are not supposed to, we're not in a position where we can judge other people's motives, but we have to watch how people behave. And basically try and teach them we need to watch what influences us. That's a good teach. I was like, well, doing a good job of it. Good, I'm glad to hear that happening. And it was just natural conversation. There was nothing forced about it, which was good. But when she was saying that, it deals with part of this. When Jesus said, I know thy works, he was able to say, not I just see what you're doing, but he says, I know what's underneath those works. And I know the heart behind them. I know what's going on. The Lord knows that. You ever think about that? I, I like the text you sent me, Caleb, and that idea of the Lord, the creator of the universe, actually wanting to talk with us. And he knows us. Um, I had... Uh, Brother Bond said something to me and he had a complimentary statement. He said, Brother Man, you're, uh, you have a strong church over there. And I told him, I said, I've got some very good folks we work with and we've got a, uh, we're blessed in so many different ways as a church. And as a pastor, I, it wouldn't have been appropriate to say it at that time. It would have seemed like a dig towards you as a congregation. And I, that's not in my heart. But as a pastor, I could have accurately said we have strengths and we have weaknesses. I could say just myself as the pastor here. I have strengths and I have weaknesses. We need the Lord's help in, in so many areas and we're grateful for the areas where that helps becoming manifest and it's going forward. But all of us have that, don't we? The strong points, the weak points. And yet Jesus looks and He said to this church, He said, I know thy works. And by the way, He said... Their, their, their works are not perfect. It'll say, when you look down later, he makes a statement. He said, I have found thy works, I have not found, rather, thy works perfect with God. The Lord knew their motive and intent. His evaluation, in part of what we read, he said, I have not found thy works perfect with God. I, I highlighted those two words, with God. Look where that shows up, if you will, in... Um, uh, let's see, where did he make that? Okay, verse 2 is where he said that. 
I have not found thy works perfect before God. Excuse me, not with God, but before God. And that's the only measurement is before God. That really is the only accurate measurement. How, do, how does what we do measure up before God? How does what we do measure up as God looks at it? The only true measurement of a church, it's not property they own or don't own. A church is not spiritual because it's large. A church is not spiritual because it's small. <laughs> I've seen people take both sides of that argument. Both of them are ludicrous. Very good friend of mine, um, very good friend of mine in the Christian world, since he's gone home to be with the Lord, he made a statement once and then he repeated it, so it led to a conversation between us. He said, I really think, he says, a church gets up a certain size, he says, they're not tr- they tend to not be truly spiritual anymore. And I thought, well, you're on dangerous ground with that statement. I wonder if the church in Jerusalem wasn't spiritual when they went from 120 to 3,120 in one day. So oh, they ended up fussing. They were fussing with the 120 too. Except for that 10 days of one accord in that upper room. <laughs> so I asked him a question. I said, so what's large enough? When is the church large enough? He said, I think about 200 is about healthy. Now how you reach that conclusion, it's funny to me. So I started asking questions. I said, okay. I said, so you've chosen a number, 200. I said, do you have any substantiation for that? Well, no, but just watching things. I said, so a church grows, people come, families are being reached, people have come, they're learning, that's their home church, they're growing, they love the people there, they're being led by and hopefully love the pastor there. I said, so when you get to 210, which family do you look at and say, you no longer come to this church, you need to go to another church? He just got quiet. I said, so who, who, who decides that? And which ones do you say this is too big now? And we move them. And I started, I started asking him questions along that line. I said, okay, you've, you've made an assertion here. How does that work out? I'm not much for this theoretical nonsense. In the real world, where we're trying to do something for the Lord, what does this mean? What does this look like? And he said, I guess that wouldn't work. I said, no, it wouldn't work at all. Because the measurement... A church can run 2,000 and be a godly, spiritual, separated, loving church. A church can run 20 and be a godly, spiritual, separated, loving church. A a church can run 2,000 and be a carnal, prideful mess. A church can run 20 and be a carnal, prideful mess. In fact, I've seen, you say, well, you understand how a large congregation say, look at us. And we get that, don't we? <laughs> but I, what I'm going to say, it almost sounds like an exaggeration. Unfortunately, it isn't. I have encountered groups that say, look at us. We have almost nobody coming. That must mean we're pure and spiritual. Have <coughs> I ever been around that little flavor thing? I encountered one fellow was bragging about how many people they voted out of their church. Excuse me. If you're a shepherd and your claim to fame is how many sheep you've killed, I really don't want to be near you. I'm a shepherd. Look how many sheep I can run off. (laughs) There was literally a church that passed out t-shirts that said I got offended at so-and-so Baptist church. They were proud of it. Well, pride and ignorance all go together. 
You say, what's the measurement then? The measurement is a likeness to what Christ has laid out in the Scripture. To whatever degree we match what the Scripture says in our actions, in our spirit, in our passion for Christ, in our zeal for Him, to whatever degree we match that, to that degree we're healthy as a church, to that degree we're doing what we ought to do, and to whatever degree we don't match that, to that degree we strongly need the Lord to help us go the right direction and do better in that area. And so here Sardis is. And God said to him, not one thing that you're doing this well. That's not good. But it's interesting. He still gives them instruction of what to do. Which to me is kind of telling. It is, he says, I know your works. And then he knew what sort of work it is. Please don't lose your place in Revelation, but look at 1 Corinthians 3. I'm telling you about the eyes and the spirits at least giving discernment. Another place they're called lamps, burning lamps, which has the idea of illumination, has the idea of showing some things. So I understand some things about it. There's nothing I'm going to get into a strong exposition on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And you seek the Lord on that. He may open that right up to you. 1 Corinthians 3. Here's a foundation for understanding this thing about the Lord knowing our works individually and as a church. Look in, look in verse, uh, verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, that's Paul, as a wise master builder, that description for him as a, an apostle, I have laid the foundation in another buildeth thereon. Uh, uh, you think of with the Corinthians, Apollos came along and uh, had influence there. There were other preachers that came had influence there. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He said, now the foundation, you can't do any different. Now if any man build upon this foundation, the foundation of Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. It's made open and clear. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, like a burning lamp. And the fire shall try every man's work. What's that next little prepositional phrase? Of what? What's the word? Sort it is. And so... He says the value is based on what type of work it is. And God knows what type of work it is. God literally knows why we do what we do. And He judges things accordingly with that. Then notice He said, I know thy works in verse 1. Know something else in verse 1. I'm back in Revelation. He said there, He said, I know thy works that thou hast the name that thou livest and are dead. That's interesting. Thou hast the name. Reputation is what others think you are. Character is what God knows you are. They apparently have been living at one time. That's obvious. It was a church. At some point it had been. It had been founded. It had grown. It was there. So apparently at one time it had been living. And in fact, that's intimated in the next verses where it says, strengthen that which remains, which is about to die. So... It had been living at one point. 
And he said, you have a name that you live. They were still running on what their reputation had been. It was interesting. I heard uh, Brother Charles Keene who pastored for many, many years in Milford, Ohio. And that work grew and flourished under his pastorate. It was known as a church. It's, of course, the home for bearing precious seed. And uh, was known for missionary. A lot of missionary families came out of that church. A lot of work done that way. I heard him speaking one time at a meeting, and this has been many, many years ago. He, he was, he's been out of the pastorate there for a long time. Uh, uh, he's uh, not been the pastor of that church for a long time. And uh, he made the statement, and I thought it was interesting. It caught my attention, and it, and it fits with this. His church, the church there at Milford, was by no means a dead church when he said this, and by no means was one where nothing was going on, but this is telling he said the statement, he said, we're known actually around the world as a missions church. And that was true. It wasn't a brag and wasn't presented in the spirit of a brag. He paused. I still remember in my mind's eye, I can see. He paused and he said, the truth is, he said, I think we were doing more for missions before we became known as a missions church. That's interesting. Sardis apparently had been alive at one point, and now they're dead. Thou hast a name. They had a reputation. Somebody said, hey, you ever been over that church at Sardis? No, I heard it's a good work. It wasn't anymore. It had a name. It was interesting. When I was graduating with my undergraduate degree, I had a meeting with Brother Isles. We were talking, and he found out my background and uh, where I went to college, he said, you know, he said, uh, that group of people, he said, used to be strong with witnessing and stuff. He said, there were doctrinal things I would have never agreed with with them. He said, but they were strong. I said, man, they're not anymore. I said, I actually got pulled into the dean's office at their most conservative Bible college and chewed out for witnessing to people in the neighborhood. I mean, chewed out over it. And I said, they're not that anymore. And he said, that's been the trouble. And at that time, he had pastored for 50 years. And he said the Bible colleges die one generation before the churches know they do. And he says they get invaded with liberal professors who don't believe the Bible, who take the young people a different way, but the churches don't know that. He says it happens with every group. And they send their young people who are going to train in the ministry off to be trained thinking that those groups are still teaching the Bible, but instead their belief that they had gotten in their home church under their under good Bible training gets assaulted and sometimes permanently damaged while they're there in that place. And he said there he said that he said those those institutions always die a generation before the churches they serve. It's an interesting observation. Sardis had a name that they lived, but they were dead. You know, if we start applying that and thinking about how that might apply to a, a personal life too. That can be very convicting too with it. Um, it's interesting, they apparently had been living and at one time they had been some kind of a force for good and everyone, including themselves, thought they still were. Notice I included the phrase including themselves. Here's a statement I wrote down while meditating on that. The widespread and persistent belief of a delusion does not make it any more factual. We could have a lot of modern illustrations in our country right now, couldn't we? The widespread and persistent belief in a delusion 
does not make it any more factual. They believed it about themselves. They had a name. Yeah, we belong to Sardis. Really? What's going on there? Well, nothing. <laughs> but they had the name. Then notice in verse 2, it says there, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. He said, as a whole, y'all are a dead church, and the few parts in you that are functional are giving out. Be watchful and strengthened. To be watchful is to have your eyes open to reality. That's the idea of being watchful. Having your eyes open to reality. Think about sometimes this shows up in the Bible, this terminology. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes His disciples and they go with Him to that garden. They sing a hymn. Then they go up to the garden. Jesus is going to be betrayed shortly. He goes on He takes the three with Him further than the other disciples. And then He has them stay. And He goes as it were as stones cast or how far you could throw a stone away past them. He says to them before He goes, stay here while I go yonder and pray. He tells them to watch. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention. How does He find them when He comes back? What are they doing? Sleeping. Amen. I think some of our members would make good disciples. Three times he does that. And he asks him the question. He asks the question when he comes back and finds him asleep that first time. He said, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Then he gives a second admonition to him that matches the first. Watch and pray that you enter not to temptation. He said, be paying attention. These things in the Bible, they teach us this, that we're supposed to watch. How about this passage out of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15? God says to His people, He says, awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He says the Lighthouse Baptist Church, there's some people in Fairfield County who've never heard a gospel witness. That's a shame. Because we have a responsibility, not only around the world, but where we live, and where we work, and where we do things. He says, awake to righteousness. What is that? You're observing, paying attention, you're being engaged. I urge you time and again when you come to church, you come to church asking God for the intensity for listening that your preacher has sought God for the intensity of delivering truth to you. You will be amazed what you'll learn and what God will do in you if you come. And you're open and want what God has for you. He'll help you every time. Be watchful. And uh, he said to do this. Then he said, uh, he said, be watchful and strengthen that which remains. He said, okay. He said, you need to make sure that you don't lose any more ground. Then look at the rest of what he says there with it. He says, be watchful and strengthen things that remain that are ready to die for I have not found thy works perfect before God. He said, you've got, you're going to lose more. You've got more that's going to happen in a negative way if you don't wake up and watch what's going on. There's a process which has led you to this. You need to become aware of it. 
Um, your following Christ needs to mean something to you. You need to get over your casual Christianity before you become a casualty in your Christianity. Then, the next statement, the thing he says there, it's interesting, he says there, he says, remember how thou hast received and heard. Look at it in verse 3. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. Then he tells them to do two things. Hold fast and repent. He says, don't lose the ground you have and get right on some things that you need to get right on. But notice he said, remember. And, and I like that. He said, remember how thou hast received and heard. Um, a Christian walk must start with faith. There's no other choice but that. I explained to the group to whom I was speaking today as I took John 11 as my text and talked to him about Martha. She came out to talk to Jesus when he was coming to town. Lazarus was dead. And uh, it was interesting. I, I opened up as I was talking to him about it after some remembrances of Mrs. Shield and stuff. And I said, uh, I said, Martha was kind of put out with God. She was put out with Christ. She was. You read it. Lord, if thou had been here, my brother would not die. By the way, Mary said the same words when she came out. Yeah? <laughs> and I told the group, and I only knew a handful of people there. I said, she was kind of put out with God. And I, and I said to him, a lot of professional people in a mostly adult group, I don't think there were actually any children. There were some who might have been late teens, early 20s, about three of those there. But I said to him, I said, uh, I said, you all, I said, we've all been put out with God one time or another. Or we just didn't understand why God was letting something go on, why he had not taken care of something, or why something turned out the way it did. You ought to see that. They're not used to me. They don't know my plainness of speech. And they're sitting like this, and they were being very attentive, but they look at each other nervously. It was kind of amazing, like, can you remember him say that? I don't know. There was a big one. But Pastor did. And I said to him, I said, we're not allowed to say that, are we? And they all giggled. So we're like, okay. I said, if we have, haven't we? And then they go, sure have. Well, here's the thing about it. <laughs> when Martha went out there, when she was upset with Christ, she still loved him. She didn't get hostile towards him. But she wanted to know why in the world did this go on? And then, of course, you know Jesus. He told her. He said, your brother will rise again. She said, I know he will rise again. The resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said those words and this was where the Gospel came in and was presented to the people. And Jesus says under her, I am the resurrection of life. And so we went from there about that and some things about it. First Corinthians, but... As, as she came and as she did this and as she was talking to him, you understand that the Christian life has to begin by faith. As I expressed to the people that it has to be by faith. Taking God at His Word. Barbara, who's one of the daughters surviving, was the one who contacted me and said that Elizabeth had asked that I be the one to preach her funeral. She said, she said you're her favorite pastor she's ever known. Elizabeth never visited our church. Maybe that's the way to keep people liking me. I'm not sure. <laughs> but she, uh, when Barbara contacted me, I told the people, I said, she contacted me and she said, it's going to be at 12 o'clock. It's going to be at Greenlawn Cemetery. 
Here's what we're doing. And so I made arrangements, rescheduled my schedule today, made sure, moved our meeting, or usually we have a leadership meeting, and moved that. Wouldn't be this morning. I left and I drove to Columbus, where I wouldn't normally have been today, and got there on the time frame to get there early. Found out exactly how it was proceeding because of the weather before I got up there. I found out. And I told myself, I did all this because Barbara sent me a text and said, in the text, this was going to be going on. I trusted and took her word. But, you know, I believed her words that were written, came to me in text form. And I acted on those enough that I said, okay, if I go there, well, then everything's going to be set like this. They know I'm coming. This is going to be taken care of. I did not coordinate it. Uh, Sheridan handled it up there. Chester, who's with Sheridan, know, know these folks. He was up there and uh, saw him. I didn't even say hi. I didn't, nothing with him until, well, excuse me, they called me the day of and he said, are you going to take care of this? I said, yes. That was it. We hadn't talked about arrangement, hadn't talked about how the services were going to go, nothing like that. I simply had her word and acted on her word. Faith is when you have God's written word. The beginning of our walk with faith. He's talking about here that as you have received, he tells them to remember how they have received. And how I received is I believed God's testimony about me that I was lost and undone because of sin. I believe God's testimony that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, the Savior of mankind. I believe that He died in my place, not as a martyr, but as a, a substitute of sacrifice. I believe He rose with power from the grave, and I trust Him. I took His word. I've made no other provisions. I have no backup plan of philosophy. My faith is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust my other friend, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's it. That's faith. He told the people in Sardis, he said, remember, look at the wording of it there. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. He said, you heard by faith. You received by faith. He said, now repent. Get back to the faith of it. The Christian life must begin by faith. And the Christian walk must be perpetuated in our behavior by that same faith. It was interesting to me in our teachers' meeting. I was asking about the lesson last week, and of course we're finishing a two-week lesson this week. I'm excited about the things God's doing with our Sunday schools. I hope that you attend. You're missing a great opportunity for Bible instruction. If you're not attending, you ought to come. But the, uh, we'd love for you to go. But Miss Jody, I asked about her class and what she taught on, how far she made it, and, and, and it helps me in developing things and such to know how the teachers, you know, how things work for them. And of course, she's got the little ones. And we're talking about heaven being a wonderful place. She made this statement. She was amazed at how much they knew about heaven. They could give her a lot of details about what heaven's like. A lot of details about what it is, how it appears in the Bible and all that. I thought that was neat. His little ears are hearing while we're teaching about it and they're picking up on that. And then I thought about this with it. I thought when Christ said that we have faith as a little child, what is that? Just take God at His word. Maybe some re one reason why they would catch that quickly 
is because they don't have any blocks in the way of unbelief saying, no, that couldn't be. I've never seen anything like that. No, that's just a really neat place I haven't seen yet. When you're small, there's a lot of neat places you haven't seen yet. And then when you get older, there's a lot of neat places you haven't seen yet. But they're like, that's just one there. And maybe they may, I don't know if they think this way or not with it, but, you know, maybe mom or dad or somebody told me about this neat place they went, and that sounded neat. But God's telling me through His Word, here's a sneak place, so why should that be hard to believe? They haven't been there yet. You say, well, I've not been to heaven. Well, I know that because, you know, <laughs> the, uh, uh, one of the people there at the funeral was funny. They said, I, I believe that, I believe Miss Shields probably, Elizabeth, I probably, she probably stormed the gate to heaven. I said, probably didn't quite work that way. I said, you only go there by invitation. The invitation's been given to all whosoever, those who are received. And, uh, <laughs> but what does this say? We look at it and, 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 and it's faith. It's by faith. Christian walk starts with faith, cannot continue outside of faith. And then, last thing I want to show you tonight, look in verse 4. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis. That's quite a phrase, even in Sardis. <laughs> Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me. He said, they're going to fellowship with me. Isn't that something? You know, when it comes to Laodicea, there's no virtue mentioned to Laodicea at all. But even there, he says, I stand at the door and knock. That's where that, that passage comes in. I mean, he's talking to the church at Laodicea. And he says, if any man will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and him with me. At Sardis, he said, your church is a mess, but you have a few people who have not defiled their garment. In other words, they've decided to do right. They didn't care if the whole church was acting worldly. They weren't going to. They didn't care if people were playing tag on the social media, bragging about the nonsense stuff they do, or posting likes of stuff that are contrary to Christian living. They're going to do the right thing because they're doing it for the Lord. Even in Sardis. There's always a remnant. Thank God for it. And Laodicea is hunting for that remnant. And Sardis, he mentions that remnant. And I put down this thought with it. You know, God always has a remnant, which is the remaining few. And they can fellowship with the Lord. Forgive me this. I mentioned to you, and of course I'm, I'm putting this out backwards because I'm doing it from my perspective. When you come in, you have Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, which is a great church. We're going to find out about them next time we visit these seven churches. And then Laodicea. And I was thinking about these. It says, even in Sardis, if this church is messed up so bad, you've got a few people. And I'm looking at that map, and I'm thinking this. <laughs> I'm thinking, those folks need to move down, down to Philadelphia. <laughs> they need to just move, move a few miles southeast. And get in a church that's doing something. Why? Because they need to serve God. And he said, even in Sardis, I've got some. Now, I'll tell you what that teaches me. It teaches me that God deals with the church, but His attention is never distracted from the individual. And He sees us as a group and holds us accountable as a group without losing the individual care Attention, strengthening that relationship with him. And that's what he wants. And uh, day by day we can walk with the Lord and we can make a difference.
Now, I used to say, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that you heard me say this at, at some point, and possibly Brother Brian, you also, I've, I'd said before to our young people, and uh, when I was teaching the young people's class, I remember one day counting them, and I said, this morning, you teens make up 15%, almost 18% of our church. What difference for good would it make in our church if 15% of our church decide to sell out? How much can we do for good and for God and how much good can be done here if each of us individually understand that we have that personal relationship with the Lord as well as a corporate responsibility as His body individually we want to serve the Lord and do what's right. He'll help us every single step you take that direction. You have the aid of God helping you with it. And he wants to help you. So Sardis had a lot of things about it. Let's pray together, all right? Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the opportunity to open a Bible in this building and teach people about you. Lord, help us to be very, very open and sensitive to what you want done, how you want us to walk with you, our personal relationship with you. And uh, Father, I pray you'll give us grace to walk in that faith where we started, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together, please. We have a song invitation. The Lord wants you to walk with Him. Who will say, I'll take Him up on that. Would you come and see me?